0: Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Scott Stossel. His book is My Age of Anxiety. It's just out from Knopf. And it's interesting because it's only partly a memoir. In fact, maybe memoir isn't quite the right word to to use here, but it is a life story. There is a life story at the core of what you are writing about here.
1: Definitely. I mean, it's people... Uh, have asked me about this, and I and I I didn't set out to write it. Certainly not as a as a straight memoir. I didn't think that my life was that interesting, even to me. And I didn't think that a book that it was just purely about my life would be all that interesting to other people. So what? I, but what I wanted to do, you know, I was interested in writing about the topic of anxiety from a sort of intellectual and cultural and scientific perspective, but I don't have any special expertise to bring to bear on those, whereas I, as a lifelong sufferer from a variety of anxieties, I do bring sort of personal authority to this, and I knew, you know, I I work in my day job kind of as an editor for the Atlantic magazine, and I know that, you know, a lot of our most effective pieces there are ones that kind of weave together elements of personal memoir and have a strong voice, but that also, you know, venture into other sort of more straight expository types of material, and so as I started assembling the book, I found that both my own inclination, but also my editor kept pushing me to put more and more of myself into the book because they didn't want, you know, I never, I never wanted to go too many pages without getting into something where there there was a little bit of a narrative anecdote that people could, could relate to. And so I hadn't, it's, it's funny when I published it, I really did think of it as more, I'm not exactly sure what the ratio of personal material to purely kind of exposition of kind of academic and scientific material is but people really are receiving it as a memoir I mean it is called my age of anxiety and there's you know I tell a lot about my life you know starting from you know infancy and even before up to up to the present day so I, I think of it as sort of a, a, a fusion of, of memoir and using the memoir stuff as kind of a jumping off point where I can explore these other aspects of anxiety
0: I think you found that even in the writing process when you were telling people that you were writing, and I'm paraphrasing here, but yeah. essentially a cultural and medical history of the diagnosis and treatment of anxiety disorders, they were like, oh, that's interesting. But when you said it's like, oh, well, it's a history of the diagnosis and treatment of, of anxiety disorders filtered through my own personal perspective, suddenly people were like, ooh, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. Uh, actually, somebody just the other day listed on Facebook. She just read that section because I, I talk about that in the book. That process of sort of beginning to gingerly talk more about the personal aspects of it, which I'd always sort of hid before. And she said, I'm exactly one of those people who when you would talk about the book as kind of arid intellectual history, I'd sort of nod politely and now I'm completely gripped by all the, all the personal stuff. So yeah, I mean, one thing that I had to wrestle with a lot, I mean, you know, one reason I had deep ambivalence about this book is that for years I've you know, struggled with these anxiety issues, but for the most part have been successful at concealing them, even as, as I wrestle with them. And part of the process of, you know, in, in, I talk in the book about talking to my therapist who keeps urging me, you know, come out with it. It'll be like, it'll be liberating. The burden of solitary suffering will be lifted. So in the book, it, you know, as I, I sort of bring the reader or try to through the experience of my wrestling with, should I you know, make this more personal, really talk candidly about my own struggles and work that into the book. And again, at the urging of both my editor and my therapist, I did that more and more. And I don't know, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, when you're sitting there alone in your office typing away, it seems such a remote chance that this would ever actually be public. You know, I was worried it wouldn't get published. So I was, you know, when I was sort of anguishing about, well, should I put this personal detail in that might be a little bit embarrassing? I'd be like, ah, throw it in there. You know, it's never going to see the light of day anyway. I need to keep the editor interested. And of course, you know, here we are in, the book comes out. And it, and it has been, I guess, refreshing and, and gratifying to me that so many people have responded to the personal aspects. And I think if I had, at, at one point I did contemplate doing it without any memoirish aspect. And I think it would have been, an, you know, I could have done an okay job on that. I think it wouldn't get nearly the readership and would probably be, you know, a pretty tough slog for people to get through if they weren't really deeply interested in the topic.
0: When you talk about that ambivalence, you know, you talk about that in, in the book as well, this idea that intellectually, you know, even before working on this book and certainly working on this book has reinforced that anxiety is something that is increasingly prevalent in our culture. There are so many people who are going through some form of anxiety one way or another that it's not a shameful condition in any way. And you know that intellectually, but emotionally you confess that you are still grappling with this idea that you're ashamed of your illness, that you've It feels like a moral failing, even if you know it isn't. Yeah.
1: Stigma definitely still attaches to mental illness. And I I didn't set out to try to, uh, you know, uh, I was not motivated to try, uh, in writing the book, to try to lift the stigma. But now that it's out there, I feel like that is an important service that it can serve. And I do think that for for men and women, but particularly for men, there is a, uh, you know, particular shamefulness, you know, whether that's a societal norm or something that's inside me that I feel is shameful to be, Weak or anxious, and it's, you know. And now that, in, from a practical perspective, advertising that I wrestle with this, you know, would this somehow compromise me in my professional dealings? And so I really, I, I really do wrestle a lot with that. In the book, there's this amazing quote that I came across from World War II, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it was this sign that we posted on, you know, Allied gun installations in Malta, and it said, "If you are a man, you will not permit yourself a." Uh, respect to show anxiety and dis- dis- uh, anxiety neurosis, or to display fear, and I feel like in some ways that is still the prevailing ethos, although you know diminished somewhat. You know, and, and this is why, for forty-four, I'm forty-four 40 years old now, and you know, for forty, the first forty-three and a half years of my life, I did not come out with this. So that's that's been a struggle, but it has been. And, and actually, and I meant to say too, the, the irony, and you know, probably the comment that I get. More than any other from people who read the book is, oh, it's so brave. And I know what they mean because they're saying, you know, it's brave to come out with sort of an admission of weakness. But it's, to me, it's ironic. For one thing, I hear them, I hear brave and I'm worrying. What they really mean is stupid because why would anybody do something? You know, if it was a logical thing to do, it wouldn't be brave. And also, it's ironic that I'm being brave about admitting my lack of bravery. So I have complex feelings about all this, as you can imagine.
0: And for me, the bravery in your personal story comes across in. The ways that you write about not just the emotional things, but parts where you essentially confess to being a high-functioning alcoholic, for example, as Zane is like, look, I'm not proud of the fact that the only way I can deal with public speaking is to pop a bunch of Xanax and take a couple shots of scotch, but this is what it takes for me to get through this kind of situation.
1: And that's another thing I had sort of misgivings about, you know, should I put that out there? And and there's a certain irony there too that, and, and I just, you know, what, what I, the reason why I left things like that in and put them in is because I thought, you know, really I'm trying to do as good a job as I can, you know, A, just being completely candid for candor's sake and accuracy, but also to really try to convey what it is like and how I've managed to learned to, 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 to cope. And I, and, you know, I would not prescribe my kind of pre-public speaking regimen anyone, no doctor would recommend it, but it does, you know, knock on wood so far, basically work for me. And I th- and I, you know, and I knew, I, I figured, I figured being candid about that would, again, I'm not, I'm not, offering that as a recommended prescription for fellow sufferers, and I think probably other fellow sufferers have other odd uh, coping mechanisms, but you do what, what works, and it's, and it's worked for me, and, it, and it's allowed me to do lectures and, and public appearances in, um, on live TV that I would not otherwise have been able to, to, to do. So,
0: As you were struggling with all this, you talk about how your therapist, Dr. W., mm-hmm. as part of his encouragement, he's basically trying to tell you you're more resilient than you think you are. Has that sunk in now that the book is out and that you're out there?
1: Good question. To some degree, yes. And I would say, actually, the main thing was simply completing the book. I mean, even before it was officially published, but by the time it had been accepted by the publisher and, you know, I saw it, there was a great feeling of sort of satisfaction, I would say empowerment, that like, despite all of my general anxiety about everything and my anxieties in particular about the book and you know there were many moments along the way through the writing process where i thought i'd written myself into a corner or that i wouldn't finish it or that the publisher would cancel it i managed to persevere and to, to, to to finish it and that does i guess you know i have to concede demonstrate a form of resilience I'm trying to get better Dr. W remarks and other people who've interviewed me have said you know like you could come across in the book is there's this gap between you know your outward presentation and maybe the some of the successes you've had in your life and you know how you tend to think about yourself and that clearly there is this this gap so i and I have embraced the as a goal you know needing to you know cultivate resilience in myself and so I think you know maybe there I've seen marginal bits of evidence where this is actually starting to take hold and, and prove to be effective. I still, it's not, it's certainly not fully taken hold, but I hope as that in the fullness of time and as I continue to go out talking about the book, you know, maybe I will get not again to full cure. I think temperamentally, I will always have this predisposition to anxiety, but that there'll be more acceptance of myself for who I am and more as Dr. W says, you know, I, I do handle a lot for someone with anxiety and, and I guess, some say I had a lot period
0: in writing about your treatment history with Dr. W and with the, the many people who come before them for me, it's it's fascinating watching that level of candor about your treatment, and particularly in your ongoing relationship with Dr. W. Yeah I mean we're not going to out him in this podcast yeah, but the clues are there. yeah <laughs> and, and I mean it seems like it must be different for someone who you're actively engaged in therapy with. To be telling them, "Hey, I want to write about our therapy as part of this yep. project that I write," rather than going back to the people that you used to be involved with and saying, "Can I write about this?" and "And, and what? And what? What do you have saved from when we were together?"
1: That, that's exactly right. And so, with with Dr. W, I was I was already in therapy with him when I started working on the book. He obviously became a character in the book. was very supportive and involved all along. He he, I actually did before the book came out. He read the whole thing. And the reason that, and as you say, it's not hard, you know, I sort of intentionally made it not terribly hard to figure out who he is in part because I, you know, I have a very favorable view of him, which I hope comes through that he's an excellent therapist. So i was not at great pains to conceal his identity with some of the other folks where I had more mixed experiences with them. Let's say, I think probably a really ardent Google detective could figure some of them out of the taken pains with some of them. I, I talk about Dr. Ellen in the book, who I did go back, you know, who knew I was working on the book. I'd been in therapy with him for many, many years, went back to him, tried to get records for him, which had sort of gone missing, but interviewed him for it. I haven't heard from him. I don't know what he thought of the book. I talk about the Dr. Stanford and Dr. Harvard in the book. Um, and interestingly, just the other day, I had not told Dr. Harvard that I was working on the book. I hadn't seen him for probably going on seven years or so, actually, or eight or nine. But I, we published an extract in The Atlantic that came out where I where he's mentioned and I got a letter at the office and on the return address I could see his name and I thought oh my god this is terrifying what what's it going to say didn't open it for a while and then I did and I thought he was going to say oh I you know you got this wrong. and I don't like how you treated me. In fact, he said he loved the excerpt in the Atlantic, which is what he was responding to. He actually said, I'm sending this to you, not as a letter to the editor, because I'm not sure that I'm the gorilla doctor that you talk to, you, you talk about it in, in the book, but I'm pretty sure that I am. And you got one thing wrong in the article, which is that this, I, I talk in the book about how at one point I learned that the you know, antidepressant that he's prescribed for me is the same one he's prescribing for a gorilla at the local zoo. And in the magazine article, it says that actually I don't, you know, what, from what I've been able to determine, the, the, the medicine didn't work. And the book actually say it did work. He wrote this long letter saying not only did it work, but they, he used a mixture of benzodiazepines and SSRIs on a whole bunch of different gorillas at the zoo. And in fact, um, it worked on all of them. They're now all drug free and, and, and cured. And he said that he liked the, the article. So that was quite, a relief, and I was pleased that, that he liked it and was okay with how he comes across in the book.
0: Of course, the other big personal aspect of telling this story is writing about your family. I already know from the New York Times article in late December yeah. that that has been a little bit more problematic.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit fraught, as, you know, completely understandably, and for my father all along has been very, very supportive of the project, and actually, you know, I told him about every bit about him that I was putting into the book. He actually lent me a Uh, his diary from which I quote briefly in a footnote. So so he was supportive all along until the excerpt was going to come out in the Atlantic. And it's one thing to for someone who picks up the book and is really invested in the project and gets to page 362 and come across you know some of these experiences I had with my dad when I was a kid and he would you know sometimes lose patience and, and 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 get physically abusive. It's it's another thing for you know everyone you know receiving the Atlantic magazine in their living room to have it show up on their living room table. He's totally out of context. So that was a little bit difficult. We made you know we I negotiated some changes with him and he ended up being fine with it. My mother who just Constitutionally, is sort of averse to this kind of self-disclosure, airing dirty laundry. I talk about you know, how I'm sort of Woody Allen, trapped in John Calvin. She's definitely of the John Calvin, keep it all under wraps. And so she was very, very uncomfortable with the book. disputes aspects of it. But you know, what I hope comes across in the book is that with both of them, and and part, you know, I talk about my own experience. As a parent, and failing to protect my own kids from anxiety, which suggest that this is, you know, largely genetic. You know, all of us as parents, or most of us as parents, are doing the best that we can, and my parents were for the most part, you know, provided me a stable middle-class home. They were loving parents, paid for my education. And in talking about them in passing in the book, particularly my mother's sort of unusual overprotectiveness, I'm just trying to, as I'm sort of trying on different theories of anxiety for why I may have ended up with the anxiety that I did. You know, is it, could it have been my mother's behavior? And I don't mean in any way for her to come across in a, in a bad, I, I, tr- I tried to be as accurate as I could. But obviously, you know, I'm, as the writer, I have control over how she's coming across. And I, I feel bad that she you know, feels uncomfortable with the whole thing but all that said you know now that the book is out they've been very very supportive and in fact and this is odd because they're divorced and my dad is remarried and they are all i think coming together to sort of you know co-host a sort of an event in in, in boston at the end of january that'll be interesting to say the least but they've been very supportive despite everything
0: in revisiting your family history and your treatment history you write about and this is Great, because it dovetails into the cultural and medical histories that you're writing about on the broader scale. You basically write about, and again, I'm going to paraphrase, essentially you've been a repository for pretty much all the medical treatments of the last 30 years. Yeah. Whatever has come out, they've tried it on you at some point.
1: And I sort of extend that back even further because, you know, I talk about the family history of anxiety going back four generations that I know of to my great-grandfather in particular. I tracked down his medical records, and here was a guy who was, he was, Dean of Harvard College, you know, outwardly very successful, but had a series of kind of nervous breakdowns provoked by by severe anxiety. So it was profoundly disconcerting for me to kind of read his case files and see, in some ways, how similar his thought patterns and and it was interesting for me to think, you know, and and, and you know, this was in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and the available psychopharmacological treatments that were available to him were much less effective and extensive than what was available to me. He underwent electroshock therapy. So, you know, there's almost, he died in 1975. My problem sort of began acutely in the in the late 80s. So, you know, between the two of us, we have almost like the last half century or more. And And again, that's why I kind of thought I was a useful unifying narrative strand for the book, because I could talk about my experience with all the major classes of drugs that have come, you know, been First line prescriptions for anxiety, going back to the major tranquilizers like thorazine and the early benzodiazepines and the later benzodiazepines and tricyclic antidepressants and SSRI antidepressants, and then more cutting edge or new agey treatments, you know, which I've sort of dipped in and out of. Uh, but that was one reason why I thought using myself as the unifying strand could be a useful through line.
0: And what are some of the worst manifestations of your anxiety disorder, I guess, both historically and up to the present day?
1: It started very young. I mean, when I was a little boy, I would, had acute, acute separation anxiety, which I now know is very typical in sort of the presentation of people who end up with anxiety disorders as adults. It, it, it's, this is the acute fear that you're going to be abandoned or that you, know, you can't afford, you know, stand to be away from your parents and, you know, that's at a certain stage, it's a normal developmental stage to pass through for little kids. But for me, it was more acute and then didn't relent as I got into my elementary school and then even high school years where I'd always be convinced that my parents had abandoned me or were going to die in a car crash. I mean, just like utter conviction every time they were gone that they had died. It wasn't rational. The nadir for me was seventh grade where I started a new school, and it was just somehow the combination of that probably entering adolescence was just overpowering and my, you know, worst anxieties about separation, sort of school phobia, my emetophobia, which is sort of my longest standing fear, which is the, you know, sort of slightly idiosyncratic phobia of, of vomiting, became their most bad. And there were times, in, in, in retrospect, I think it's, you know, I, I, I nearly was sent to the mental hospital then, and that's when I was first prescribed antipsychotics and antidepressants and, and, and benzodiazepines and sort of those combined with psychotherapy managed to keep me in school for the year and, and, and out of the hospital. But back then it was just like, I could, I would be at school and just feel like I was about to burst into tears all the time and was utterly Terrified. Through the years, you know, the, the longest standing phobias, is the, I'm sure we have agoraphobia and fear of uh, flying and fear of vomiting. I'm able to manage the fear of flying with Xanax. I can if it's clear weather, if it's a short distance, but it's you know definitely constrained my ability to travel. At its worst, and you know, fortunately, knock on wood, you know, I've managed to avoid having one of these major breakdowns in public. When I'm beset by an acute panic attack or sort of something provoked by the phobic stimulus of, of being afraid about my stomach, I will be reduced to sort of, you know, uncontrollable shaking and sweating, and it's just, it's, it's awful. If you saw me, you might think I was having a seizure. It's that. You know, I literally cannot control my legs from spasm. It doesn't happen all that often. The more public embarrassments are I've had incidents, not recently, fortunately, but where I'll be in a public setting and have to walk off stage. I don't know if you saw, there was an incident with Michael Bay. The film director was out. He, he, he got attacked by a lot of people for sort of seeming like he was being a prima donna and being upset that the teleprompter had and walking off stage. To me, watching, I don't know for sure, I can't, it looked to me very familiar as, you know, things were sort of going off script and he just got overwhelmed with anxiety and had to walk off. That looked very much to me like what I've had to do on a number of occasions.
0: The pressures of a book tour must really sort of kick in absolutely
1: i mean andrew solomon who wrote the noon day demon and atlas of depression who in some ways was kind of my that book in many ways was sort of the model and inspiration for for my book my age of anxiety he very kindly provided a blurb and then we had some correspondence back and forth and he said i really and he said and he said I'm on, I'm on book tour and he said i think quite sincerely i really hope that the challenges of book tour don't kind of push you over the edge. And I've had a few, you know, I began it in earnest. The book only came out literally a week ago, but I did, I was doing some press before that. And, you know, I have to say that on the Sunday night before last week, thinking about everything that was to come, you know, including this week in New York, doing media and interviews like this. And then next week on the West coast, there were moments when I thought, geez, maybe I ought to just back out. I don't know if I can handle all of this. But having been through, you know, sort of the first wave of it, and they've all, again, knock on wood, gone okay, and the book seems to be getting a good reception, I still worry about overdoing it, and I have to be careful that I'm getting enough sleep and taking the right amount of medication, not over-medicating. I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic that maybe I can get through it okay than I was, you know, a week and a half ago when I was feeling rather despairing about all of it. But it is stressful, but also enjoyable in some ways,
0: too. And it goes back to, you know, what we were saying about resilience before, is that It's funny because you talk about how the kinds of imaginal situations where Dr. W is putting you through visualizations of your worst fears, the success there feels ambivalent, right? whereas here you are plunging into it and it's going
1: okay. I've toyed with the idea of, you know, my plan all along has been to do my sort of pregame regimen, as it were, to make sure I'm appropriately medicated. But, you know, given the topic of the book, you know, at some point I probably ought to try doing it, in effect, you know, pharmacologically naked. I mean, I've my, the antidepressants are sort of something that I take and that's, I will be on those, but to not take anti-anxiety medications, not have a shot of alcohol beforehand with the thinking being that, you know, maybe I'll manage it just fine. And that would be great for me. And people may then wonder, wait, why do you, you're, you don't seem that anxious at all, which is what they say all the time now. Or maybe I maybe I'll have a visible, you know, manifestation of my anxiety, in which case what I hope I'd be able to do is say, well, at least you're getting your money's worth because you can see <laughs> this is what it's like. The worst case scenario would be if it's either I can't do it at all or it's I just give kind of impaired performance that's you know neither interestingly floridly anxious nor nor you know lucid just kind of constrained which is what happens when people are you know anxious on stage and you can't think straight and you're just you know sort of withdrawing into yourself rather than focusing on the task at hand which is trying to communicate to the people in the audience
0: does the thought of going out and talking about this book? How does that compare to the process of writing about it? Because you write about towards the later chapters. There's a section where you talk about how you had to self-medicate yourself just to get the book done.
1: In some ways, it's a different kind of anxiety—the anxiety that I was suffering in trying to write the book. I mean, sometimes I would provoke myself into a panic attack with too much caffeine or whatever, and I would, that's when I would get into the you know sort of trying to medicate myself to get through it. That was sort of a mixture of just worry and and, self-loathing and despair that I would never finish it, which is a horrible feeling, quite dreadful as you're going through it, but in a weird way, less acute than if I'm, if I would allow myself to, you know, if I did not medicate myself or about to walk out of stage, the acute, acute fear that is just sort of all consuming dread and often Physiologically, just sort of takes over my body. It, it, it is is awful. Andrew Solomon, again, to quote him, he talks in his book and, and in person. You know, his main affliction is depression, but he says, you know, if someone were to tell him today that for the next month he was going to have a bout of depression, he would be unhappy about that, but sort of resigned to, okay, well, this is going to suck, but I will get through it. If someone said you are going to have a week, uh, sorry, the next month of acute anxiety, he just doesn't think he could bear it. And for me, that worst kind of anxiety is. Almost like your, both your brain and your physiology are hijacked. You know, it's hard to kind of yank it back under your own control.
0: In keeping with a lot of the medical aspects of this that you write about, it's important to stress that this is a physiological condition, and you go into a lot of details about that.
1: It's everything. and I mean, this is one of the things that's that why I was so drawn to anxiety as a topic. Obviously, I was wanting to you know, figure out what accounted for it in myself and maybe help sort of rope my way towards finding either some cure or redemption in it, but also because it's such an interesting window, as any emotion is, into the human condition, into human emotion and physiology and just what makes up the self. And that over... The course of history, and 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 in fact, at any given moment, there are so many ways, so many windows through which you can view anxiety. I mean, many people view it as a purely spiritual condition. You know, religious people, or even Kierkegaard. You know, it's a problem of whether or not you take the leap of faith. For many people, you know, Plato on down, it's a philosophical condition. In some ways, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is just a descendant of the Stoics, who said it's irrational. Just train your brain not to have those thoughts. It's a thought process problem. For some people, it's a psychological thing. You know. uh, or a psychiatric problem, as for Freud, who believed it was repressed. Sexual impulses or, you know, psychologists of all different strains today think it's all kinds of, you know, there there, there are many psych- psychological or even existential explanations. You know, my Dr. W and, and, and Freud in his way believe that certain phobias are actually the displacement of existential fears that are legitimate about that we are all mortal and that we're going to die, we're going to suffer, you know, all kinds of things. Instead, it's easier to worry about rats. But fundamentally, in the end, I do believe that it is a, Physiological condition has physiological symptoms. One's predisposition to be anxious is, I think, largely, but certainly not wholly, programmed by your underlying genome, and there are evolutionary reasons for that. And to the extent that it is a disease, the way that diabetes or Parkinson's or something like that is, it's it's a medical condition, and that's you know partly. And there's now more acceptance than there was 50 years ago that it is a medical condition. You can see the you know physiology if you can see the neuroanatomy of it in an a- a- MRI machine but anytime you're talking about elements of personality or the self if you see too much in, in effect you know power to genes or biology and-, and make it purely reductionist then you're sort of giving up any idea really of free will or that your personality is anything more than just a you know constellation of neurotransmitters, which of course it is, but I think it is also much, much more than that. that. That was one of the things I was really trying to wrestle with this book, is how all of these different ways of looking at anxiety can be woven together. And they're, because of cutting-edge stuff in neuroscience and genetics and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of this stuff is kind of converging, and we're realizing that all these different modes of therapy are looking at the same thing, just at different levels.
0: One of those levels is that you talk about how a lot of the medical understanding of anxiety disorders has almost in a sense been reverse engineered from looking at these medications and noticing that they have these particular calming effects or tranquilizing effects and saying, if this medication does this, it must be treating something. This is what it's treating.
1: Yeah, that that, that was also fascinating to me. I mean, for me, m- many medications have been highly effective. They believe they work, but it was somewhat horrifying to read about the haphazard way so many of these things come into being. I mean, many of the leading treatments for an- uh, anxiety and depression were accidentally discovered and originally designed for something completely different, like as an insecticide or rocket fuel or as a preservative for penicillin or as itself uh, an antibiotic. And for many years, nobody really, knew, you know, they're sort of People would be throwing these willy-nilly at people and they would work, but they didn't know why they worked. They didn't understand what the underlying mechanism was. And, you know, most famously in the 1960s, there was, I mean, nowadays everyone talks about Panic disorder, it's an existing medically recognized disorder. It's part of the popular culture. People talk about panic attacks. There was no such thing, no such word as a panic attack. Nobody talked about panic disorder until the 70s. It wasn't officially a disorder until 1980. And basically what happened is exactly as you say, in the 1960s, Donald Klein, who's a psychiatrist in New York, was experimenting with this new drug, then new drug, imipramine, which was originally designed as an antidepressant. And he was giving it to a bunch of people on the psychiatric ward. And he realized that a lot of the people who were suffering from what we now call panic attacks, but, you know, back then it was called sort of anxiety neurosis. They'd have these paroxysmal attacks of anxiety. When he gave them imipramine, those attacks would go away. But interestingly, what it didn't cure was their general worry, or sort of, you know, like low-grade anxiety, which other things like the early benzodiazepines were curing. This led to what he called the first pharmacological dissection, which meant that because this drug treated, something that was different from general neurotic anxiety, but seemed to treat panic anxiety, they said, well, there must be this thing called panic disorder. So then that was written into the DSM-3, which is the sort of Bible of the American Psychiatric Association in 1980, and now thousands of studies have been piled up on it over 40 years, and it's fundamentally written into our understanding of mental illness. But 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 there's often this case where, you know, we're backing into things because of the way that drugs work. But there's also a funny way in which we've become full circle, gone full circle, that, you know, with the advent of the SSRIs, Prozac being the first and probably most famous, and, you know, the early thinking into some degree, still the thinking is that it's operative mechanisms on your serotonin system in the brain. And, It's unclear now whether that's really the case. This is what Hippocrates thought back in the 4th century A.D., that it had to do with, like, right proportion of humors in your brain would determine what kind of temperament you had. And now we're talking about neurotransmitters. But the basic metaphor is is the same, that these juices or chemicals floating around in your body, you know, having the right composition of them leads to mental health. Having uh, one that's out of whack will make you unwell.
0: After grappling with all this history and with your own history and putting it in here and, and putting it out there, do you feel like you have a better grip on this moving forward?
1: Sometimes I think I do. You know, for instance, you know, having an, a, an understanding of the neuromechanics of a panic attack, I can sometimes, if I feel one coming on, can sort of head it off being, by you know knowing what it is. Whereas people who have them for the first time or you know, don't know what they are, are completely thrown off. You know, I continue to read around literature. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think there's there's so much cutting edge research going on in this now. I think that we'll probably, will, there, there will soon be more and better medications targeted at specific anxiety. Fundamentally, when I'm at my most anxious, none of that matters and it just doesn't work. But the other area where I feel like I've drawn a lot of solace. Is just, you know, obviously I now know the statistics about how many millions of Americans are suffering from this at any given time, many of them who are high-functioning. But reading back through history and reading about Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud and William James and these random, you know, 19th century, 18th century British physicians i never heard of who wrestled with horrible things. Robert Burton, who was, you know, wrote the famous Anatomy of Melancholy in the 1600s. Even Hippocrates diagnosing people, you know, that like this is a part of the human condition and many people, you know, going back years and years have suffered from it. I find that in a in a way consoling in some way, and it gives me solace and makes me feel a you know, sense of kinship. Obviously, these are, you know, Samuel Johnson, you know, struggled with these kinds of things. So I, I, I find that just interesting intrinsically, and and to some for some reason I, I take consolation and hope from that.
0: Well, I think a lot of other people will probably find some consolation and hope, and definitely a lot of knowledge in this book as well. It's My Age of Anxiety. It's published by Knopf, and I've been talking with the author Scott Stossel. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you are not subscribed yet through iTunes, you can. And if you are subscribed through iTunes, I hope that you might take a moment to rate and review it and make it a little easier for other people to find the podcast as well. Join me again for another interview soon. Thanks.